all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today, I'll be taking your questions and calls related to health and wellness. I've got lots of questions that have come in through Facebook this morning, as well as through email. You can always email us at at mpbonline.org. You can go over to Facebook to Healthy Habits with Josie and drop me messages there, or you can give us a call. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And it's the time of the year where people start to get, um, get curious about how to make healthy habit changes for the upcoming new year. Um, I would say you don't have to wait for the new year to make uh, a healthy change in your daily life. Little small changes are what add up to big, lasting, sustainable change. But I love that people are interested in wanting to know more about their bodies, more about how we, what we eat and how we move and sleep and all of those things um, kind of mesh up together to build a healthier lifestyle. And so that's what the brunt of the questions that I've received so far um, have been about. And we'll start to dig through, uh, through some of those this morning. But please feel free to give us a call if you have a question or a comment. The first question that, I, that came in today actually asked about carpal tunnel syndrome uh, and what that was and how we treat it. And that, that's a great one. It's a very, very common um, condition that we see in primary care um, and that, we, that you may know someone that has carpal tunnel or you may have it yourself, but there's not always a ton of understanding about what it is. And so I think the best way to address that is to, to kind of break down the words, right? So carpal, you know, C-A-R-P-A-L. What is a carpal? That's your wrist bones. So those are the carpal bones. And so if we think about that, then we automatically know that carpal tunnel relates to something going on in our wrist. And then when you think of the word tunnel, you usually think of like a passageway, right? And that's exactly what we're talking about here. There's a little um, passageway in the wrist where some different things run, uh, but in particular, the median nerve runs through there. And um, it's not a huge space. Uh, there are a lot of kind of uh, fibrous structures that kind of line that tunnel. So it doesn't have a whole lot of room to expand and get bigger. So when um, 
there's some kind of compression of that area, whether that be from actual pressure, if you're, you're pushing on that area or you're bending that joint in a certain way that it, that it compresses that area, or there's inflammation and swelling in that little tunnel, and that presses on the nerve, and you get some of the symptoms of carpal tunnel. So what are those symptoms? Well, it, they usually are kind of vague when they first start, and they, they increase in um, severity and intensity over time. Um, but it may start with just some discomfort in uh, your hand, in your fingers, numbness and tingling. They're kind of when people start to, to pay attention to it a little bit more because uh, we don't you know, it's a little off-putting when something is, is tingling, has that pins and needles feeling to it, um, or is numb. Um, and then if kind of left uh, to continue to develop without any type of treatment, that kind of long-term pressure and, and damage to that nerve can lead to some decreased uh, strength in the hand, increased pain, not being able to open things as well because we don't have as much grip, strength, and dexterity. So the median nerve, that nerve that runs through that little tunnel, it primarily kind of feeds or, or um, runs into the first four fingers, right? So the thumb, the index finger, the middle finger, and then a portion of the ring finger. So a lot of times when you come into your, your health care provider's office and you tell us that you have pain in your hand or numbness in your hand, things like that, we're going to ask you like where, where on your hand that is and what fingers, because that helps us uh, determine kind of what nerve might be affected um, and might be being impinged. Um, the pinky finger is more of an ulnar nerve uh, problem there, and you can have more than one thing going on at a time. What I normally see people come in with is they'll tell me that they're, they're waking up in either in the morning or the middle of the night with pain in their hand and numbness like their hand has fallen asleep. Uh, and that's often because of the way that we uh, position our hands when we sleep. Uh, so a lot of times uh, people tend to curl their wrists in and like tuck into themselves and that compresses that little space in our wrist that that nerve is going through and will give us some of that that symptom um, repetitive use of the hands so if you're uh, somebody who spends a lot of time at the keyboard like on the computer having that wrist kind of kicked up in that um, that position where it's kind of flexed up is, is one of the issues that can lead to kind of some chronic irritation in that wrist. That's why they make different uh, kind of wrist supports that you can put underneath your uh, wrist at the keyboard to help take some of the pressure off of, or change the position of the wrist. Um, I see it a lot more now in younger people from holding cell phones and, and the way that we hold our phones and, and type with our thumbs and all these different kinds of things. And we do it for hours and hours on end, and that kind of puts additional pressure uh, in that area of the wrist. And then again, uh, in sleep. So how do we, you know, how do, what do we do about it? How do we treat it if we think that's what's going on? Well, first is to make sure that's what is going on uh, by going to your healthcare provider and, and getting an exam. We do a couple of things, usually very basic to start with in the office. We might actually tap on um, the 
part of your wrist where the where the median nerve would be to see if that produces any of the you know kind of zinging pain or numbness or burning that you're describing and then we may take the wrist and bend it in certain positions and hold it there for um, you know 30 seconds or so to, to again see if we can reproduce that numbness because that'll tell us that that nerve is being compressed right there there are of course some more sophisticated tests going on with that where we can actually um, track the uh, the connection between the nerves and the muscles and make sure that those are, are working appropriately. But once we have a diagnosis of carpal tunnel, there are different treatment strategies based on the severity of the, um, the disorder and, you know, kind of how far along we are in it. One of the things that and I kind of mentioned it already is positioning devices, right? So if it's from a kind of repetitive way that you hold your hand for your job, it may be, uh, using some type of uh, positioning device to help alleviate some of that pressure. If it is that you curl your hands in when you sleep at night, um, that's a lot harder to, you know, just tell you not, you know, to change positions and, and don't put your hands in that position and that kind of thing because you're asleep. So they actually make uh, splints for that. So it would look like a, like a brace for your wrist, but it's to keep that wrist in a neutral position where it's not, um, flexed or extended uh, where it would cause compression of that nerve. So that, that may be an option as well. Sometimes folks wear that just while they sleep. Sometimes they also wear it during, uh, during working hours, you know, to help uh, take the pressure off of that, that little tunnel so that we can start to calm the inflammation down in there. Anti-inflammatory medications may also be used to help calm that um, inflammation down. But if it's to the point where, you know, these kind of conservative measures have uh, not produced the results that we're desiring or it is progressing to the point where we have loss of strength in that hand and we're actually losing function in the hand, then we may go ahead um, for kind of surgical um, decompression of that area. You'll often hear that called a carpal tunnel release. And we're trying to release the pressure in that little tunnel kind of by making it a little bit um, bigger by cutting through some of the things and kind of expanding that area out there. Um, even after that is done, it takes a little while for strength and mobility to recuperate. And so I usually recommend folks start you know, before they actually have the procedure with what are my rehab plans for after this, right? Am I going to have physical therapy or occupational therapy following the surgery? Um, if not, then what do I need to do for, for home exercises, those kinds of things to, to kind of regain that mobility and that strength there in, in the wrist joint. So that was... Um, you know, a really great question that came in and a really common condition that we see, but one that's often not super well understood. So if you feel like you have um, issues with carpal tunnel, talk it over with your healthcare provider and see if there are conservative things that we can do now to prevent um, prevent these things from, from getting worse. I will say one um, time that you may see carpal tunnel uh, kind of creep up is during pregnancy uh, because of the increased kind of fluid that we take on in our bodies when we're pregnant. That increased fluid volume can sometimes cause increased pressure in that area. So I know a lot of times that uh, when you're pregnant, you'll start to have some of that hand discomfort and that numbness, especially when you're sleeping. And so, again, 
that can be conservatively treated while you're pregnant uh, with some bracing and some splints and those kinds of things. And hopefully that will um, reduce in severity once the pregnancy uh, is completed. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we're answering your health and wellness questions today. I've gotten a lot of questions that have come in uh, in anticipation of making healthy lifestyle changes for the new year. And that's great and exciting. Um, I do want to remind you that you don't have to wait for a specific occasion to make a healthy, uh, a healthier choice. Each day we're presented with a set of choices and we can make uh, a healthier choices sometimes. So uh, but prior to the break, uh, I had a question that asked about carpal tunnel syndrome and we went through that and what it is, what are some ways to help uh, prevent and treat it. And I've got an additional question about exercise. So this uh, email came in, says, I was recently diagnosed with arthritis. What are the best exercises for knee pain? And this is probably one of the most common questions that I get um, in clinics, uh, as well as just out on the on the show and you know, just through regular communications with folks, because knee pain is so incredibly common that a lot of people are dealing with it. Now, this particular um, email says they just got diagnosed with arthritis. They didn't tell me exactly what kind of arthritis. So there's kind of your osteoarthritis or more of your, your wear and tear arthritis. And then there's rheumatoid arthritis, which is more of an autoimmune condition where we actually have some destruction of of the joints um, from an autoimmune standpoint. But if we're talking about uh, exercises for knee pain, um, they'll be pretty similar between RA and OA. There are some additional causes of knee pain that may cause some adjustments in what kind of exercises I would recommend for folks. Um, In particular, if you've got um, an issue with the alignment of your kneecap, um, which is more common than people give it give it credit for, um, and that's um, kind of called patellar maltracking, where the the kneecap doesn't slide back and forth in the groove where we would like for it uh, like for it to, and that's usually uh, pain right behind the kneecap. So the first question I would have for this person is, you know, where's your knee hurting, right? And what makes it better? What makes it worse? 
Um, are there, um, you know, what kind of symptoms? Is it a grinding type of pain? Is it just a dull type pain? And then do we have any weakness in that joint, right? So arthritis pain is usually going to be um, either kind of vague and it's all over the knee or it's going to be kind of on the, the sides where the joint joints meet up, where the, the top of the knee bone and the bottom knee bones meet up together. We call that joint lines. So there's, you know, a joint line on the inside of your knee, a joint line on the outside of your knee. Um, and so that may be where some of the issue is or that pain behind the, the kneecap that I was talking about earlier. Um, so once we kind of identify where the pain is, again, I want to know if that joint is nice and stable, right? And so there are some things that we can do in the office to check for stability of the joint. Um, but usually when I ask people, I'm like, has your knee just ever given out on you and you've fallen from that? Because we're going to proceed with exercises in a different way if the, if the joint is not stable, right? But in general, when we're talking about exercises for the knee joint, we're wanting to make sure that we keep the joint mobile, right? That we keep it moving because if we just stop using a joint, then it's just going to continue to deteriorate. And so people get confused with that a lot because if they have a, an injury or something hurts, we often tell them to, to do rice, right? To rest, to ice, to compress, to elevate. And that is completely appropriate um, advice. We're trying to you know, calm down the inflammation uh, and you know, swelling in the event of an injury, something like that. But we also don't want to rest it forever, right? So this is, you know, a, a conversation with your individual healthcare provider about when you can start using it again, how you should start using it, and doing that gradually. But when we talk about uh, knee pain, in general, we want to start with exercises that are not high impact. So meaning I'm not going to... Uh, kind of pound on that knee joint more and more, right? When we stand up, our body weight gets kind of pushed down onto our lower body joints. Now, the degree of pressure that gets put down on there is has lots of different factors, right? How much you weigh, right? That's a, that's a big determinant of it. Um, and then how strong the muscles are in the lower part of the body, right? If you've got stronger upper leg muscles, like your quad muscles, then less pressure is going to get put on that knee joint. So that's one of the strategies with exercises to try and strengthen that, that upper joint of the leg, right? But we can do that in a variety of different ways. So if someone has pretty significant osteoarthritis or joint pain, then jogging is probably not going to be the best option for us, right? That's going to increase jarring and impact on that joint every time we go. So jogging and running would probably not be where I would start. Um, if walking is tolerated, then that could be a strategy, but that is an impact exercise, right? So that also may not be the, the most favorite choice by someone who has knee pain. So what are some lower impact things that we can do? Well, bike is great, right? And so that could be an, an actual bike that, that moves and goes forward. That could be a stationary bike or recumbent bike, those types of things. Those are great for keeping the joint moving as well as starting to, to increase some of the muscle in, in the legs. That's a great option. A pool is another great option, right? Because 
when you're in the pool, it takes a lot of the pressure off of the joints just because of the change in, in kind of gravitational pull when we're in the water. Um, so that can be um, a good option as well. But if you're, you don't have access to a pool and you don't have access to a bike, what do we do? Well, we want to focus on then maybe getting in with a physical therapist um, or at least having a consult with a physical therapist about ways that you can get that uh, muscle in the top part of your leg uh, stronger so that you're able to do more things. Uh, we can do more short walks. Um, we can do just simply getting up and getting down from uh, from sitting to standing. We want to think about functional mobility, what keeps people um, independent for as long as possible. And so it's really about starting where you are and what you feel you can realistically do. And if that is just standing up a couple of times a day and walking from here to the bathroom, that's okay. We just want to get started. Um, the elliptical would be another option for folks with knee pain uh, as well, depending on the cause of the knee pain. So if you do have access to a gym, I would choose that over, uh, like, say, a treadmill or something like that. Um, so lower impact activities that keep the joint nice and uh, nice and mobile while trying to strengthen the upper part of um, of the, the leg is always a good place to start with exercise. Now, to follow that up, um, I actually read an article this morning that came in my uh, one of the journals that I get, and it had to do with step count, right? And step count is um, a very easy to think about uh, number or metric because it's something that we, we all understand, right? When we're talking about exercise, sometimes it can get a little confusing when we start to talk about intensity and distance and people go, well, how fast should I be going or how far should I be going and those kinds of things. But uh, just paying attention to the number of steps that you take can be kind of a, an easier way to track your fitness activity. And we've long um, kind of talked about 10,000 steps a day, right, and needing to get 10,000 steps. And, you know, my personal view on that is you start where you are, right? If you're only getting 500 steps a day, then I'm surely not going to set a goal for you for 10,000 steps. But we also have to look at where those guidelines come from and is there science behind it. And so where did that 10,000 step come from and, and is that evidence-based? And, you know, we do know that 10,000 steps is associated with, with good health. But this, this um, article that I read this morning actually grouped steps into uh, kind of lower brackets. They did kind of a less than 7,000 steps a day and then a, a 7 to, to 9,000 step and then, well, actually 7 to 9,999 and then over you know, 10,000 and over. And what they found was the folks kind of in that moderate group, the, the 7,000 to, to you know, 99, 99, um, had significant reductions in all-cause mortality. So they were less likely to die um, of, of anything than folks who were not that active, right? So perhaps 7,000 might be um, a more appropriate cutoff. And actually, based off this data, it's looking like, um, 7,000 steps is an excellent goal to shoot for, especially in folks in the, the middle age range. So again, start where you are. If you're at 500 steps a day, you're, you don't have to go to 7,000 steps a day. 
what I often start with on folks who are wanting to get more active is just just tracking, right? So just seeing what you get on um, an average weekly basis, right? And kind of going from there. I have folks who think that um, or who perceive their level of activity to be higher than uh, than what it actually is. You know, they think that they're getting lots and lots of steps a day, but they're actually not. So just starting to track. If you've got a smartphone, most of them have a built-in pedometer in it. You just need to wear that kind of closer to your body. Uh, so in a you know in a pocket or. I wear a, a walking belt that I kind of tuck mine into, or you can get just a regular pedometer that all it does is is track steps. Or there's other wearable technologies, Apple watches, um, um, Fitbits, those kinds of things to track track your steps and just track for a week and see what you're getting on a on a daily basis and then what that daily average is, and then depending on what that is, be real realistic with yourself. If you're getting a, you know 2,000 steps a day then let's not try to go from 2,000 to 7,000. Maybe uh, 250 extra steps a day is uh, is something that you want to work on. Maybe it's 500. Maybe it is 1,000. Not everybody's is going to look the same. But once you come up with that goal, then we have to put the plan in place to address that, right? So if you want to get an extra 1,000 steps a day, then we have to intentionally look for ways to get those extra steps in, right? Parking farther away at the grocery store um, or at work, um, walking uh, to the cafeteria maybe instead of to the vending machine, uh, taking some flights of stairs instead of the elevator, um, using part of your lunch break to to take a walk, different things there. Again, it's going to look different for each person, but setting the goal with very clear, um, very clear what that goal is, and then writing the plan to address that because it's not going to happen by by accident per se. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Coach Charlie Melton, and I want to help steer you in the right direction. If you need coaching on fixing up your automobile, listen to our podcast, AutoCorrect, found on all podcasting platforms. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. We're taking your questions today related to building a healthy lifestyle. We've had lots of questions about exercise up until this point, and that's great. If you have a question for us, our number is 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. You can always email us, fit at mpbonline.org. Or you can go over to uh, to Facebook, to Healthy Habits with Josie, and leave me a message there. 
Um, I did get an email, and and I and this I've gotten more than one email about this particular headline that came out. Um, the headline was "Eating a Hot Dog Reduces Your Life by 36 Minutes," and so I got lots of lots of people forwarded me this this news article and said, "What are my thoughts on this?" And you know, is it true? And my immediate thought on it was, "Why are we making things so complicated?" Right? So. Nutrition is one of those things that is probably the, one of the more confusing uh, things that people try to try to deal with, try to incorporate in their daily life, and it's because of headlines um, that that are very eye-catching and very you know, grab your attention. Uh, but we've got to stop focusing in on singular foods, right? And what the contribution of a single food does. To, to your nutrition right now. I'm all for making small changes, right? And and ditching processed meat is 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 a great place to start. But it's also you know kind of attaching this this minute to this or vilifying this food is is not really going to set us up for a healthy relationship with food. In particular, because there was a another headline that came along with this that said if you eat a certain amount of sesame seeds. It added back certain minutes of your life. So there were people trying to figure out how many sesame seed buns they would need to eat their hot dog on to to cancel it out. And oh my gosh, that's just that's just more more mental math than you need to do because it's not about singular foods. It's about the way we eat as a as a whole, as a as a pattern, and the foods that we eat um, every single day, right? So don't, you know, don't get hung up in studies like this. So many people come to see me and will start to do uh, their kind of initial initial nutrition um, kind of recall. You know, I'm just trying to get a feel for what they're eating. And they'll say, but I don't eat bread. And that just, that I'm like, why, why don't you eat bread? Well, bread's bad. And that's given a whole lot of weight and a whole lot of, uh, of uh, moral virtue to, to some flour, right? So we have to step back and think of what are our health goals and how do these foods fit into our, uh, our daily way of eating to achieve our health goals, right? So eliminating bread can be a strategy for some people, but not everybody has to cut bread completely out of their diet, right? I still eat bread, right? I made a, um, I did a little uh, cooking demo the other day for um, kind of my packing my lunches for for the week, and I had like a cucumber sandwich, and it was actually on white bread, and I got some comments on the video like I can't believe you used white bread, and I'm not getting that caught up in it, guys, right? So fiber is absolutely what we what we want to increase in our diet, full on, right? Um, and 95% of the time, I would choose a wheat bread for this or a higher fiber bread for this. But I really wanted that soft, pillowy white bread that you get when you bite into a cucumber sandwich, like if you've ever had it at a baby shower, any of those kinds of things, right? And if having that kept me from going to the drive through and eating, you know, a cheeseburger fries and soda, then that was a healthier choice for me. And so I don't want us to get so caught up in the you know the cleanliness of our ingredients because I really don't like the word clean diet 
um, because that implies if you eat another way, then you're dirty. And so I really don't like that terminology. It's really all about foods we need to eat more of and foods we need to eat less of. And singular foods and singular events are not what contributes to long-standing health problems. It's what we eat day after day after day that uh, lays the foundation for uh, nutrition-related diseases, right? So hot dogs are not a health food. I don't want you to eat them, but I also don't want you to be calculating up minutes that it's going to you know, cost you uh, off your life for that particular thing, right? There are just things, again, that we want to have more of in our diet and things that we want to have less of in our diet. Um, and that leads us to the next diet question that uh, says, um, I guess I need to learn more about arthritis and the foods to avoid for inflammation. And that's a perfect follow-up question, right? Because, again, just eliminating a singular food is not necessarily going to give us, you know, make us pain-free from an arthritis standpoint. There are absolutely foods that increase inflammation, but there are also a ton of other lifestyle factors that increase inflammation. So it's not just about the food, right? Sleep in particular, um, when we don't sleep well, we actually perceive pain more, and it can be, you know, our inflammatory markers can go up and those kinds of things. So it's not just kind of a one-size-fits-all, eat this, and your, your pain will be better and your arthritis will be better. When we look at nutrition patterns that are good for inflammation, they are going to be patterns that are lower in processed things and higher in fruits, veggies, grains, nuts, seeds, those kinds of things. So less um, refined sugar, or I don't even, not even the word refined, but less added sugar, so sugars that were not, uh, did not come already in the product, so sodas, right, pure candy, um, uh, fruit beverages that are, are not juice, they're, you know, like a tropical punch, Hawaiian punch, those kinds of things, um, snack cakes and, and those types of items, things that have very low, are low on the nutrition scale, high on the added sugar scale, do tend to increase inflammation, Right. Things that are um, uh, more animal-based can have more inflammatory factors associated with it, especially if it's something that's um, cooked at a super high temperature, grilled, smoked, those kinds of things because of some of the, the changes that occur on the chemical level with those uh, that increase inflammation. Whereas things that are high in fiber and low in preservatives like fruits and veggies in particular um, are, tend to be lower on the inflammation scale. So hey, it, Josie? Yeah, absolutely. We have got a phone call on the line, so why don't we say good morning to William, who's calling in from Starkville. Good morning, William. How can we help you yeah. today? Good morning. Uh, I, I was going to comment uh, that uh, <clears throat> I've got a knee that started to, to give me uh, – some signals about five years ago, but glucosamine and chondritin has mm-hmm. held it at bay. I'm able to walk uh, four miles hard three, three, three or more times a week uh, with no problem. Uh, I even jog a little bit. I'm, I'm very old, but uh, uh, it doesn't bother me, except I, I sense it when I'm climbing stairs. It's mm-hmm. like... Uh, uh, the sensation originally was just like rubbing my knuckles together. They don't hurt, but it doesn't feel mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
but glucosamine has helped for for ages and with some other problems that I like that. But a month ago, uh, my hands are my mother had terribly crooked fingers for with arthritis or rheumatism, whatever it is, and mine are, are that way too. And a month ago, I made the gross mistake of picking up with bare hand a, a sixty or eighty pound uh, a bucket of sand with, uh, you know, just the bale of the bucket in my bear. Mm. Boy, my two index fingers are so sore all of a sudden since then that, uh, and I just wondered if there's anything that uh, might help that. I uh, I can't use too much, too much ad, but uh, just wondered if, uh, what what I might do for, for those sore fingers. I'm lucky it didn't hurt. I could still use all the rest of the fingers, but. My two index fingers are are uh, pretty darn tender. Yeah, and you didn't hear any pops or anything like that. Oh no, no, no! It just like no, no! It just just was straining the fingers. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, with a it's about an eighth of an inch in diameter, maybe a trifle more, the bale on yeah. a on a bucket, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> I just wondered if there's anything that I might do to. Yeah, absolutely. So more than likely, you just strained some of the tendons and ligaments that are in that particular area. They're swollen. The fingers are, those two joints, my big joint and my two index fingers are swollen and and sore, sore, tender to touch and so on. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, no, you're fine. That helps me out a lot there. So when did this happen? Last week? Is that what you said? Did you tell me when it happened? Oh, I think I lost him. All right. So it sounds like there's some inflammation going on in that particular area. As long as they're kind of lined up okay and you've got full movement of those, we're probably okay to just kind of continue to nurse it a little bit. But it sounds like we probably got some some irritation to the the ligaments and the tendons in that finger. Um, And so resting it as much as we can. I know we talked about not resting forever, but we do need to, to rest those fingers out a little bit so that we're not picking up things with those as much and putting more strain and pressure on those. If they are swollen, you can do a little bit of, of cool therapy with that. Never, ever put ice directly on your skin because um, you can get kind of a, a frost burn from that, especially as we get older uh, and the kind of the fatty layer uh, gets, gets less underneath our skin. Um, but you could uh, get a commercial, commercially prepared cool pack or um, put a washcloth in the freezer for a little bit, get it cold, and place that on there. Elevate it as well above the level of your heart uh, to help some of that swelling go down. And if it's not better in the next, you know, week or so, I would go back to, I would go see your regular healthcare provider and make sure there's nothing, um, you know, nothing got torn or anything in that particular area. But it sounds like it was probably just um, kind of a, a sprain or a strain of that, that particular area there. But it was a great question. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we've had a great conversation today about, in particular, exercise and nutrition and how to fit that into your daily living plan. We are in the last segment of the show, so we've got just a couple minutes left if you have a question for us. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring I did have a question that came in asked about, says, what are my diet changes for high cholesterol? And I get a, a variation of this question almost every day, but substitute in a different uh, medical condition, right? What are my diet changes for diabetes? What are my diet changes for high cholesterol? What are my diet changes for high blood pressure? And again, we're, we're, we're making it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be because all of these kind of cardiometabolic issues, right, can be addressed by increasing fiber and decreasing fat. And so how do we do that? Well, fiber only lives in plants and cholesterol in particular only lives in animals. And the vast majority of saturated fat are in animal products as well. Now, this is not me telling you you have to be vegan. This is me telling you we as a society, we need to eat more fruits and vegetables and less animal-based products, especially combined at one meal. It's very, very hard to um, not consume too much saturated fat when we have multiple animal-based products at a meal. Think um, like a burger with cheese and bacon, right? Or even breakfast when we have bacon and eggs and cheese grits, right? Lots and lots of animal products at one time. The cholesterol in those and the saturated fat in those adds up very, very quickly. So it's not about totally giving up animal products, although that that is a viable strategy for a lot of people, but it's about making changes that you are able to sustain for the long term, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month but things that you feel confident and comfortable being able to implement for all, right? And hey, so that Josie? may be, absolutely, Kevin. Got a couple calls. Maybe we can squeeze in these last two calls of the hour, starting Let's with... Let's give it a whirl. Okay. Uh, first up, here's Gwen. Good morning, Gwen. How can I help you? Um, I just wanted to say about the man with the problem with his fingers. Uh-huh. Uh, there's an arnica lotion that you can, or in a tube, you can get at a health food store or the Kroger that I have found to help a lot with muscles and and stiffness and joint problems and bruises. And the other thing I wanted to say was um, there's a famous heart surgeon named Stephen Gundry 
who has a couple of books out, and I got them from MPB. And uh, he seems to be able to cure a lot of things by changing your diet. So it's some people might think it's kind of extreme, but I've been doing it for about a year, and I'm feeling as well as I've ever felt. And uh, you don't have to get off of meat, although I just do eggs. And you have to be careful about the the milk you drink because a lot of people have sensitivities to milk because of a a gene mutation. But anyway, I just thought people who are having heart or uh, diabetes or um, knee problems, he's, some people have not had to have knee or knee surgery because they've been on this diet. And it leans some of it leans a little toward keto. He wants you to do a half a cup of oil, uh, olive oil a day. And so I just wanted to put that out there if people want to investigate it. Thank you so much. And, you know, there are there are lots of diets out there and some, uh, you know, I have problems with some I don't have problems with, but at the end of the day, more real food, right, and incorporating more, uh, you know, more real food sources um, instead of processed foods are always a great way to go. All right, I think we have time for our last caller, Kevin. And it is John from Mobile. Good morning, John. How can we help you? Uh, good morning. Thank you. Um, I tuned in a little late, so I didn't hear if you mentioned shoulder joints. Um, I had a job that ended about six years ago that involved a lot of uh, varied lifting and moving. And um, I wanted to know uh, if doctors have recommended uh, any kind of, oh, I don't know, surgery or uh, treatments for uh, frozen shoulder and shoulders that just, uh, shoulder joints that just um, frequently hurt. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's usually, well, right now it's my left shoulder joint when I um, forget about the condition and raise to reach something on an upper shelf or something like that. Uh, I get a jolt. It's, uh, you know, it's okay. kind of painful. Okay. Uh, and when you say a jolt, are you talking about like a numbness or just kind of a sharp pain? A sharp pain. It's okay. like a, a nerve has gotten pinched. Okay. Okay. So there are, just like with the knee joint, a variety of things that can be going on with the shoulder joint, right? It can be arthritis in the actual joint of the shoulder, like where the, the humerus joins on. Or you can have arthritis in the kind of where the clavicle joins on as well. Um, Bursitis is also an option for shoulder pain, in particular when moving it to a certain position kind of causes a catch or or a pain. That can be kind of the underlying culprit there. Um, Pinched nerves, like you mentioned. Sometimes shoulder pain is coming more from the, the neck area as well. And then there's always your rotator cuff injuries and that kind of stuff. So accurate diagnosis will guide the the treatment strategy for that. If it is not a tear or anything like that, bursitis, we often do, you know, anti-inflammatory medicines, sometimes a steroid in that particular area to calm down the inflammation there, and then usually follow that up with physical therapy. Um, I had a physical therapist on um, several months back, and he actually talked about frozen shoulder and how you rehab that and how you get the mobility back in that. Um, So looping in a physical therapist early on in the treatment plan of whatever shoulder injury we have going on is going to be an excellent excellent idea so that they can give us exercises and treatments. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, 
Please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.